Destructive heresies, denying the sovereign Lord, swift destruction, depraved conduct, disrepute, greed, exploitation, fabricated stories, condemnation, destruction. It's beginning to look a lot. No, it's not. Oh my goodness me, it really isn't, is it? This is not a Christmas passage. Don't worry, this is not going to be one of the passages I preach at any of our carol services. The Christmas lights might be up outside and switched on. The snow may have fallen uh, this morning. Uh, But in the life of the church, despite how things look on the outside, we've not actually reached Christmas yet. Uh, We've just arrived, the season of Advent. That's why the Advent candles lit this morning. It's why on Friday, um, some of our seniors and, and others had Adventure into Advent. That brilliant day. Kate's here. Thank you so much. You're a big part of organising that. Um, a day of Advent reflections and crafts and games, lunch and proper pub skittles. It's why today, yeah, is the first Sunday of Advent. We've got our Advent wreath, uh, beautifully made by um, Anne and with help from a number of our children in our children's groups, the angels and their stars. And Maybe you know, um, over the years, it's sort of different themes that become the focus for each Sunday in Advent. Uh, maybe you know the, the peace, joy, love, and hope themes. Maybe you know the, the themes of the patriarchs, the prophets, uh, of John the Baptist, and of Mary. But actually, if we, we go back far enough, we'll find that actually the traditional themes for Advent have been the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. See, Advent is a a time of watching and waiting, of expectation and preparation with a horizon line that that goes beyond just the birth of Jesus to the time when Jesus will return in glory to judge, as it says in the Apostles' Creed, the living and the dead. When, in the words of uh, 2 Peter 3 that we'll see next Sunday, everything done will be laid bare. And when Jesus will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And so maybe 2 Peter 2 isn't such a strange place to find ourselves in uh, this morning. But it might not be a strange place, but it is hard hitting, isn't it? I don't think any of us can have missed that as uh, Brian read that. Thank you, Brian, for reading such a uh, heavy hitting passage. Maybe maybe you wonder, like, why does Peter write in such a way? Has he just had one of those days? You know those kind of days where you stub your toe, you bang your head on the cupboard door, you put gone off milk on your breakfast, and when you're trying to get home at the end of the day, you discover you've lost your keys. And you end up writing something down which you later regret. Is 2 Peter 2 the equivalent of an email that we send in haste and in frustration and in a bad mood that we later regret? No. This is God's word. This is God's word to God's people through Peter. Down through the centuries, uh, Christians and the church have recognized the letter to Peter and has accepted these words as God's words. Describing them in the same way Peter describes uh, himself. Um, some of the Old Testament prophets, we, we heard it last week at the, the end of chapter 1. It talks about, um, though human, prophets... Peter spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is in the inspired word of God. Maybe you remember the story of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. And that moment when, when Peter failed Jesus spectacularly. You know, as, as Jesus is being carted off in the equivalent of the back of a police van, Peter's there with the other officers going, oh, I don't know, I don't know, got nothing to do with me, go. Three times. 
And then you know this is how the story goes on a few days later. Jesus has died, been put in the tomb. He's reign raised to life again. And Jesus and Peter, after a breakfast of barbecued fish at the beach, go for a walk. Three times Jesus turns to Peter and says, do you love me? You read about it in John chapter 21. And then after each of those questions, and as Peter replies, yes, of course I love you, Lord. What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. So what Peter's doing in these words here is, is the work Jesus gave him. The work of Jesus, our true good shepherd. He's giving a warning to his followers, to his sheep, to us. What's the warning? It's there in, in verse 1. Uh, just as there were false prophets among the people of God. So, uh, you know, Peter's just been describing the Old Testament prophets. Just as there were uh, false prophets. He even name checks one of them in the reading, doesn't he? Verse 15. Uh, Balaam, you know, the one in Numbers who's told off by his donkey. Um, just as there were false prophets among the people of God in the, uh, in the Old Testament, ju- just so the same way, there will be false teachers among you. Peter hits hard with his words here because he's not just speaking to every Christian. He's got Christian teachers, particularly in his sights. Those who have the role of teaching in the life of, of the church. Just, Im- just imagine with me, somebody uh, learning to drive. Uh, they go out on a driving lesson in their driving instructor's car. Their driving instructor with the extra pedals is there sitting next to them. And they end up turning the car up the wrong way of a one-way street and crashing straight into a car uh, coming the other way. Just think how the police would speak to the driver compared to the driving instructor. The, the driver's made a mistake. There's damage to deal with and a fairly major lesson to be learned, right? What about the driving instructor, the professional, the one, the one who's supposed to be in charge and in control? Well, surely the police are going to come down a lot harder on the driving instructor, surely. Just, just imagine then what would come the driving instructor's way if the police then found out that the instructor told the driver to turn the wrong way up the road. And then instead of telling them to pull over and stop, said, go faster! There's something of that being pictured here. Peter's words are hardest hitting for the Christian leader, the Christian teacher. Because one of the clearest repeated warnings throughout the pages of the New Testament is that there will be false teachers in the church. Maybe we're tempted to think, well, that was just then. We're now. But it wasn't just in the early days of the church. These words speak of all the days for God's people until Jesus returns. So 2 Peter 2 gives us, I think, two marks uh, to pay attention to. Two marks of false teachers. Uh, destructive heresies and depraved conduct. So the first mark is, is, is seen there. The second sentence of verse 1 is there, isn't it? It says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign law to bought them. Wouldn't it be great if false teachers in the church just had a nice big neon sign above their head with a big arrow going, false teacher? It'd be very useful, wouldn't it? The trouble is, that's not the case. Uh, false teachers look like everybody else. Well, not, maybe not quite everybody else, except they'll be at the front. And as somebody standing at the front this morning, that is not lost on me. And maybe from a distance, we sometimes can spot false teaching. 
uh, false teachers. Uh, particularly when they're in other places or uh, connected to other cultures. Uh, maybe, maybe you've uh, seen something in the prosperity gospel. Uh, people who say, well, if you follow Jesus, you will become wealthy. As long as you give enough, you will become rich beyond measure. And the person saying that's got a private jet, so surely they know, right? Or perhaps slightly closer to home, the one that says, well, if you're a follower of Jesus, of course you're always going to be healthy. Jesus is a healer. And if you're not well, you haven't got enough faith. It's false teaching. And when it comes to false teaching, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is what's the story behind the teaching? Is it rooted, as it says in verse 3, in fabricated stories, or is it rooted in the very great and precious promises of God and the testimony who, of, of those who, earlier in, one, in 2 Peter 1, Peter described what eyewitnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ's majesty. What's the story it's rooted in? And it's a really important thing to bear in mind because actually when false teaching is closer to home, it's much harder to spot. Why? Because it says it's secretly introduced. Now, don't think there's some great conspiracy theory going on. It's secretly introduced because it's subtle. It's more the stories that our culture is rooted in coming into the life of the church. You know, in a country and culture that rejoices in diversity and celebrates in multiculturalism, part of that means that there are church leaders who teach that other religions are just a valid way of finding God than Jesus. But that doesn't make sense of Jesus' words when he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. In a culture that at a moment where Actually, the goal of life is, has become happiness, self-fulfillment, and feeling good about yourself at all costs. We find that church leaders can change the message of the gospel from God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for your sin. To God adores you and affirms you just the way you are. It's subtle. But it's there. And I want to suggest that recent debates and decisions in the, the life of the Church of England, you might be aware of them, you might not be, uh, particularly around offering prayers of blessing uh, to same-sex couples, seems to me to be, to be rooted in, in a different gospel. The, the message of God adores you and affirms you just the way you are. And so for me, uh, seeing a number of church leaders in the Church of England supporting Blessing same-sex relationships, whilst at the same time saying, well, actually, our teaching about marriage, our doctrine about marriage, being at the place of sex for one man, one woman, lifelong marriage, and trying to hold those two together, it just doesn't make sense to me. That's why I don't feel able to use those prayers. But I'll tell you what I will pray for. I will pray that we as a church at St. Luke's will be a place where Whoever someone is, whatever is going on for them, wherever they're from, whatever life looks like for them, they will come and discover Jesus here. But more than that, we'll come and discover Jesus' call to take up your cross daily and follow him and have your life completely reshaped in every part. Whether it's to do with who's in your bed, what's in your wallet, how you use your time, the words you think and speak. In 2 Peter 2, uh, false teachers place themselves in a very high risk 
situation. They are, in the words of verse 1, bringing swift destruction on them. This is really strong language. Verse 3, their destruction has not been sleeping. Verse 17, perhaps most striking and strongest of all, blackest darkness is reserved for them. And Peter's day, the false teachers appear to be in denying that there was going to be a day when Jesus would return as judge. Peter's message here, don't doubt that God's judgment is coming. God's judge is going to come. There's going to be judgment in verse 4 for the angels who sin. Judgment will come in the same way that it came in the ancient world in verse 5 in Noah's day. How it's glimpsed in the, in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. Destructive heresies are destructive because of God's judgment. But just as in the ancient days and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, there is hope. Just look at Noah and his family. Just look at Lot. These Old Testament stories of rescue. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. For Noah and his family, for Lot, there was rescue. Wasn't there when God's judgment came? God rescued them, not because they were perfect. Not because they had all their theologies sorted and set out. They were rescued by God's mercy. Because they truly trusted God and his mercy, even when it cost them everything. See, there is rescue for anyone in light of Jesus' return as judge. And the rescue route throughout history has always been the same. Truly trusting the God Jesus makes known to us, even when it costs us. Truly trusting that the judge himself was first born a baby in a wooden manger, to be nailed upon a wooden cross, to take the judgment we should face for us. See, when we look at the cross, when we're reminded of Jesus' death through bread and wine this morning, we see the seriousness of God's judgment. We also see the breadth and generosity of his mercy. Destructive heresies are destructive because they shrink Jesus and his cross right down. Instead of seeing and hearing Jesus in high definition surround sound, it's like we go back in time to flickering black and white TVs. We're trying to get some signal with the aerial up here. A mark of the Holy Spirit being at work in our life together is when our vision of Jesus is greater and when our desire to follow his ways increases. And see, if the first mark of false teachers is destructive heresies, the second mark is depraved conduct. I'll sit there in verse 2. The result of false teaching says many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. False teaching is, is teaching that leads followers of Jesus away from Jesus and away from his ways. What might that look like? Well, I I think we've given a few little examples, um, fairly major examples by Peter here. First of all, he speaks of of arrogance, doesn't he? And I'll level with you. Verse 10. I'm not really sure what it means. I've not quite understood what it means to heap abuse on celestial beings. If you know, tell me afterwards, please. The New Living Translation puts it that they scoff at supernatural beings. 
There's this idea of scoffing at God's ways. Peter calls it blasphemy. Even without knowing the specifics, you can recognize the attitude, that attitude of arrogance, because it's so far away from the attitude of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's arrogance, there's greed, not just for money. Just listen to verses 13 and 14 again. It says, their idea of pleasure is to cruise in broad daylight, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. There is a thirst, a thirst for pleasure, a thirst for power, a thirst for pounds, points. You see, how we live, well, it reveals what's on the inside, what's going on in our hearts, the core of who we are. And our lifestyle rubs off on those we spend time with. And so for the Christian leader, the Christian teacher, lifestyle really matters. It's why in the New Testament letters, when some of the characteristics of what you should look for in a church leader are listed, it focuses most on character above all. Lifestyle matters. And it matters for every Christian. Remember Jesus' words? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice and lives them out is like what? A wise man who builds his house on the rock. So there's arrogance, there's greed. And thirdly, there's, there's this sort of false promised freedom. You find it in verse 19. It says, they promised freedom. They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. The people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The promise that is that in, in Christ there's freedom and we go, yes, there is. But freedom, according to the false teachers, is a freedom to do whatever you feel like, whatever you want, whatever feels right to you. But then look at the lives of false teachers. They may publicly confess Jesus. But just like a dog goes back to its vomit, it's a gross, it's a really grim image. And a pig, you can wash a pig so it's shiny and spotless and clean. And what's the first thing it's going to do? Oh, back in the mud. So you look at the lives of false teachers, and they are no different for following Jesus. Life with Jesus does come with freedom, but the freedom to live as we were created for, just as a fish is created to live in water, just as a train is created to run on track, so we are created to follow in the ways of Jesus. Life with Jesus comes with true freedom. And by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in each one of us, we have the ability to live it out. 2 Peter 2 gives us two marks of false teachers. They're hard-hitting, the destructive heresies. Where Jesus and his cross are shrunk down. Depraved conduct, where the ways of Jesus are walked away from. What we gather this morning is, as many who know, or are beginning to know, the rescue that Jesus brings from judgment. So this morning, let your vision of Jesus be greater than it was when he walked through those doors. Let your desire to walk in his ways ever be ever increasing. As we seek to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, living in the footsteps of Jesus. And be wise and discerning to the Christian voices you listen to. 
including my own. Why? Because of the great vision that Peter has from Jesus for his followers before Christ's return. It's, it's a, we find it right at the end of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. It says, We're to grow in, gra- in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's so my prayer this morning, is that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen.